Welcome to another edition of the Blue Ribbon College Basketball Podcast. The calendar is flipped to 2023, and that means conference play for college hoops, and we're ready to talk about it. We've got some uh, fun stories for you today, and also in a little bit, SEC Network analyst Dame Bradshaw will be our guest, a longtime friend of the show. Kevin Inger with Chris Dorch. Chris, what's going on, man? Hey, man, good to see you after a couple of weeks of a holiday uh, off from the podcast. Uh, miss talking to you. Yeah, same here. And uh, a lot has happened since we last spoke. Uh, and in just the last couple of days, the final unbeaten teams have fallen. Purdue lost to Rutgers 65-64. New Mexico went down against Fresno State 71-67 out in California on Tuesday. And uh, I was reading some about this, Chris, and, and, and I'm sure you probably have more details. This is the earliest since the late 70s that you've seen yeah. the last unbeaten teams uh, fall in the course of a season. Yeah, it's the second earliest that every team has lost a game in the last 45 years. The only earlier date was 2017-18. Uh, the mark was hit on December 30th. So this was the second earliest. I had actually started taking a shine in that New Mexico team. You can check them out. I guess it's on CBS Sports or maybe Fox. Um, but I watched their game at Wyoming, which they struggled to win. And then they went to Fresno State and, and got beat. And they were the last one. But, you know, Richard Pitino was philosophic about it. He said, hey, we're 14-1. It's been an unbelievable run to go two months without a loss. It's tough to win on the road, especially in conference. So, He's right. I mean, road wins are gifts, they're jewels, and uh, especially in conference. So they're, they're, they've gotten off to a great start. He's done a good job there. That's a good basketball school. It's a good basketball town. So um, I, I'm sure they're still happy. It's not a great loss. The, the shocking one was Rutgers seems to have Purdue's number. They do. One at Purdue, uh, when Purdue was ranked number one, obviously, and did the same thing last year, and both were well. The the one last year was an improbable shot, but this one was a three pointer with thirteen point three seconds left in West Lafayette, which is sold out like fifty straight times. Right. So Rutgers just they just know how to deal with Purdue. Uh, Zach Eady got in a little early foul trouble. I'm sure that didn't help. And UConn had been unbeaten, and now they've lost their last two. They were beaten at Providence on Wednesday night, 73-61. So, yeah, a, a tough uh, little stretch here, really, for some ranked teams. I, I was looking at some of the other scores from Wednesday. Uh, TCU, I, I don't know that any fan base is having a better few weeks than they are. Uh, they beat Baylor 88-87. That was a great finish to that game. Some, some terrific defensive plays. And also on uh, Wednesday, Georgia beat Auburn 76-64. The Tigers are ranked. NC State hammered Duke 84-60. to I don't know that that game was as close as the final score was yeah georgia tech beating miami they were ranked number 12 so uh tech won that game 76 70 in atlanta so a whole lot going on and uh you know we talk every year it seems like about parody in college basketball i don't know if this is an illustration of that but uh the fact that it, the unbeatens didn't last as long as they often do you know, we, we've had you know think about gonzaga made it all the way to the final four before they were lost to, you know not too long ago and you know you've seen another a few other teams make it pretty deep but uh, not this time around and I've said for years that 
I don't think it can be done. I don't think a team can go undefeated and win the national championship. Um, if anybody was ever going to do it, it might have been that Gonzaga team or the Kentucky team that made it all Kentucky, the way to yeah. you know to the Final Four and lost to Wisconsin in 2015. And you've seen a couple others over the years. Uh, UNLV back in 1991. That was a great team that uh, was beaten by Duke in Indianapolis that year. But, yeah, it's, it doesn't happen very often. And um, I, I just don't – it's there's so much pressure especially when you get deep in the tournament if you're still unbeaten to, to try to finish the job and uh it'll it's hard for me to think about any team ever uh being able to achieve that it's extremely difficult to to go all the way and i you know you hear some coaches talk about it may not be a bad thing to lose yeah. because losing you seem to learn more than in victory and it's sort of a wake-up call i mean tennessee experienced that early on got beat in Nashville to Colorado. And then it just seemed to really ignite their defense and their energy. So I'm sure if you asked Rick Barnes, he'd probably say, well, I'd rather get it out of the way early and, and not have to have to deal with any kind of pressure. But you know, the, the ACC in particular is, is wacky. If you look at the standings right now, Clemson's four and oh, Pitt's four and oh, Virginia, Duke, North Carolina, and, and FSU are all two and two. Uh, and that NC state, uh, win over Duke that you mentioned is is nuts. Uh, they win wire to wire by 24 points. It's Duke's largest losing margin to an unranked team since 1972, and NC State's largest winning margin over Duke since 1978. Oh wow! So we're going back to the disco era, man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, for, for historical comparisons, it's crazy. Yeah, and it's funny. I've thought about a couple of teams that we've seen with Vanderbilt. Uh, we played NC State in Chicago a few weeks ago and, and came up just short uh, at the end. Beat Pittsburgh by one point, and Pitts played great. They, they played really well in, in the ACC so far. We also played and won against uh, Fresno State out in California in that event around Thanksgiving, and you know they, they pulled the upset of New Mexico. So, uh, yeah, interesting times there in the ACC where it, it, it doesn't feel like anything's normal. You've got Louisville, which is you know down in the basement and just having a, a – really really tough season in year one under Kenny Payne as head coach so yeah we'll we'll see how that uh, conference play develops as uh, we move into January and February here Speaking of unranked teams making history, Kansas State did that back on Tuesday. They scored 116 points in a 116-103 to 103 win in number six, Texas. It was the most points an unranked team has ever scored in a road win over a top 10 team. I don't know how they keep track of those things. Also, the most points in a Big 12 game in regulation with 219 total. And the most points an unranked team has scored against a top 10 team since Loyola Marymount lost to number 10 LSU uh 114 to 112 back in 1990 so i didn't realize there are all those different things at play but man you put 116 on anybody in a 40 minute uh, regulation game that's a lot of points it is uh 290 total points was the third most ever in the big 12 and the only games that outranked it were in multiple overtimes so but it's funny uh and typical of jerome tang the, the new head coach who came from baylor staff he said we gave up 103 points. That's what I'm concerned about. <laughs> right. But uh, they've been one of the great stories uh, in college basketball at, at, at 13 and 1, I think it is. They only, Tang inherited two players from Bruce Weber's team, and he had to take nine newcomers. But lucky for him, he's got this kid, Marquise Noel. He's dealing right now, third in the nation in assists. Second in the nation in assists average, 8.5 a game. He's 11th in assists to turnover, 17th in steals. 
he is really playing well. He's only 5'8", but boy, he's a blur to keep up with and one of the best passers in the game. And then they really, they were able to, like we're going to talk about with Dane Bradshaw later, uh, get into that portal. They really lucked out with Keontae Johnson, the expat from Florida who was out, as you know, for two years with a heart issue. He's averaging over 18 points, leading him in rebounding, shooting almost 60% from the field and 40% from three. What a great feel-good story. And they got a couple other kids with SEC experience, Cam Carter from Mississippi State, Desi Stills from Arkansas by way of Arkansas State. And Jerome's just put that bunch together, and they're really – they've won their first two uh, big – Big 12 games at West Virginia. Well, no, at home against West Virginia at Texas. So uh, one of the most impressive and probably, you know, you wouldn't have thought type stories in college basketball. Yeah, it's amazing what a few good transfers and maybe a couple good recruits can do for a basketball team. You can turn it around really quickly. That, that's one area where basketball is different from other sports. I mean, you can you can make a turnaround in one season if you can get the right combination of guys or uh, pluck a, other, you know, a couple players now from the portal as it goes. So, yeah, he's doing a great job there at Kansas State. And uh, those, those are some crazy numbers on that K-State and Texas game from the other night. There's been more talk now of a an expanded NCAA tournament, uh, talk of a 90-team tournament uh, with the recommendation involving the NCAA that every sport have 25% of its teams in the postseason. It's interesting to read some of the writing about this thing because it feels like it's probably going to happen in some shape or form here in the coming years, but it doesn't feel like there's very much support for it at all. Um, almost everyone I've seen from around college basketball, whether it's a coach or a media person or whoever, um, has said, hey, leave the tournament the way it is at 68 teams. Um, I just don't see a whole lot of support for this, but I, I don't know that that matters a whole lot. Yeah, I mean, it's always going to come down to the almighty dollar, but I hate to see it water down and cheapen. A friend of the show, Joel Lenardi, who – studies this better than anyone he said not that anyone asked but we spent the better part of the 2021 season modeling a 96-team ncaa basketball field executive summary it's a bad idea (laughs) and uh so he goes on to say 96 is too many and he says how do we know this Ole miss florida st john's butler seton hall clemson oregon colorado unlv iowa and many others at least not yet would be uh, NCAA uh, that are not NCAA teams yet would all comfortably make a 96-team field. So, you know, is that just watering it down with a bunch of 500 in league play power conference teams? I think that's probably what we're looking at. Chris, our, our guest is a guy who's uh, joined us many times on our podcast and radio show. We're always thrilled to have him from the SEC Network. He is Dane Bradshaw. What's going on? Hey, guys, good to be back on with you, and uh, thanks for all y'all do getting us ready for the season and and covering college hoops like nobody else can. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, The other night, Kevin said he turned it on. uh, You were doing a a game, and he said the first thing he heard was you mentioning me. And it was actually – I texted you. You were wondering if a a transfer in conference could be newcomer of the year. (laughs) That's and right, that was yeah. a subject I'd actually studied, so I thought, well, I'll just text Dane. He he's probably got his phone nearby, and yeah, <laughs> I didn't think you'd mention it. No, no, it was uh, gosh, what was that? We had um, 
It was a, it was an LSU game. I think they were playing North Carolina Central or something like that's that. That's right. We we're talking. You were talking about Derek Fountain, I think. Yeah, that's right. That's what it was. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. he he transferred from Mississippi State to LSU and played yeah. well. Yeah, he he really is. Yeah, and uh, man, they they've they've provided a, a good niche for him and role, and and those guys keep winning close games despite the loss at Rupp, but just hanging in there till the end. I thought was impressive. I don't want to put the pressure on you because we all know that you played at Tennessee and, and were a folk legend there. But I, I've heard an increasing amount of, of analysts say that they think Tennessee could be a legitimate national championship contender. I think the jury is still out a little bit on their offense, the Mississippi State game notwithstanding, where they just punked them. But what do you think? I, I know that you've – You've been over backwards and done a great job to be neutral about your alma mater, as all good analysts do. But what do you think? You've seen them a bunch of times. Uh, their defense is obviously awesome. Uh, offense, not quite so much, but when they play like they did when you covered them the other night, they can beat a lot of people. They can. Um extremely optimistic on them. And I think it, it's something we've seen really similar over the past couple of years where now I think their defense is even more elite than previous years. Uh, Kennedy Chandler was great for them last year and getting steals, but he'd also be the culprit for some of those defensive breakdowns too. Um, yeah. Yet, but he would give them some things nobody else on the court could offensively. And they were getting that turnover margin as well. And so I think they've, they've been more solid this year. Um, you, you certainly trust them game in, game out defensively. It's just amazing to me how no matter who comes in the game, the opposing coach is sitting there like, well, can't really go with that guy. You don't want to put him in an ISO. You don't want to put him in yeah. a ball screen. And, and so you, you got to try to score. And actually I had Colorado um, in the Myrtle Beach Invitational after they beat Tennessee. And, um, and, and talking with that staff, and they said, you know, one thing we had to do was don't try to score early in the clock on Tennessee. Like you're, they're just so solid defensively. You, you got to try to score late to make them – move a little bit, try to get a little bit off, you know, off their ball side defense and help and all that. But even then it, it's tough. And that was more of a wake up call than anything. And so, but to answer your question, I, I think it always goes back to, okay, late game situation. You need a bucket. Where are you going? And yeah. they don't have a lot of break you down type guys as good as Vescovy is. Can he go get his own bucket? Now the counter to that, I would, I would argue is, Hey, yeah, but it, you're also sitting there in the huddle and you got five guys averaging double digits that are all capable shot makers and scorers or offensive rebounders. So a play is to be had. You don't necessarily know where it's going to come from. And yeah, you'd love to say, Hey, we've got the best player in America who can do a turnaround jumper on anybody. They, they don't have that, but that doesn't mean coach Barnes can't say, all right, seven seconds left. We're, we're going to run you know, our favorite play. And if it's not there, swing it, kick it and, and make something happen. So, um, uh, oftentimes when a, when there's a team that has multiple double-digit scores but no breakout score, you kind of look at it like, yeah, but they're kind of just a bunch of average scores. Whereas I think this team, there's probably three or four guys you could put on middle to bottom part of the SEC, and they could be averaging 15 to 18 you know, points per game. So right. um, I, I think they're just uh, kind of a victim of their own balance when you look at it that way. Um, and so uh, it, it, that part doesn't – bothered me quite as much as um you know when Keon Johnson and Jaden Springer were there and they had good defense but you know 
who was going to get you a bucket yeah. because of the way Vescovy has has come up now and Ziegler and Josiah Jordan James is, is shooting it confidently as well. Dane Bradshaw from the SEC Network is our guest. Uh, the other top team in the SEC is Alabama. Off to a 2-0 start in league play. They beat Ole Miss 84-62. Brandon Miller is certainly the best freshman in the nation, one of the best players in the SEC, averaging 19-8. and How do you see that uh, Bama-Kentucky game going on, on Saturday in Tuscaloosa where you got a Kentucky team that's hard to uh, exactly figure out what they are, but Alabama is doing what they've done over the last couple seasons under Nate Oates? Uh, they are, and Coach Cal has preached to his team Hey, I, I want us to get to 80. Game in, game out. I want us to get to 80. Uh, they're struggling to get there, though. And they're, yes, they're coming off a couple good wins. So their confidence is, is slowly but surely getting restored. They're, they're figuring out what their rotations are. Some of it as a virtue of, of injuries to where they just say, okay, well, here's our seven guys. And so, um, but I had the Missouri Kentucky game. And I think one thing that was interesting from that is, before that game, Calipari said, okay, if they want to run and they want to push tempo, then guys, this is a game we score 100. Let's run with them. And they got down early trying to do that, taking yeah. a lot of quick threes. And it was like, all right, how much of that is going to impact how they go at this Alabama team that wants to do tempo and wants it to be a high-scoring game? Because to me, that was a little bit of a look-in-the-mirror game for Kentucky to say, hey, even though we like to play fast, maybe we can't play as well as fast as teams like Alabama, Missouri. So uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they try to keep this game in the 70s. Um, their defense hadn't been great, though. They, they they had been early in the season, but, you know, the past few games, I, I don't think they've, they've been very solid defensively, and that's where they're going to have to be. I, I just don't think that they can keep up the pace and the scoring with Alabama. They just – they don't have enough shot makers um, or consistency. I mean, they can't get hot one game, but – to me, I think this is a game where they say let the fewer possessions, the better. And um, um, I, I do think that you know these types of matchups might might get them amped up to play a little bit more in that in that road environment, um, and allows them to get over some of those, uh, I guess, uh, confidence concerns that they've had previous games. Wanted to ask you about the uh, the Missouri Arkansas game also last night. Uh, what do you feel like we learned about those two games, uh, both those two teams? I should say. When I turned over there, it was about twenty five to eight Missouri, but Arkansas played great in the second half and got to the finish line one seventy four sixty eight. Give me a thought or two on that matchup. Well, I think Missouri is for real, and Chris Dorch has uh, seen this as well. Not to be a back in my day, but there's a lot of things about that team that reminds me of when Bruce Pearl took over Tennessee they don't necessarily have a Chris Lofton but man it's a bunch of mid-major guys chip on their shoulder play hard fast dictate tempo turn you over and and, you know playing with something to prove and an excited fan base they're selling out all the time at Missouri I know this was a road game but there's a lot of those things there um, that I think are, are fair comps and Arkansas to their credit uh, I don't have as much confidence in Arkansas right now as I did when they were playing well at the Maui Invitational because Trevin Brazil had the AC, has the ACL injury. And at the Maui Invitational, you thought, man, look how good they look. Plus, when they get Nick Smith back. Sure. Well, now all of a sudden you're out Brazil and Nick Smith, and you say, all right, you know, what is this team? But I think what Arkansas does such a great job of, as it goes to anybody in the SEC, is the scouting reports on personnel. I mean, they know how to – lock you down defensively and what that game plan is and how simplistic he makes it. And that's to me why Musselman has been so good 
in March is this, this NBA quick turnaround, absorb the scouting report and go out there and execute because, you know, in the NBA, obviously they're playing back-to-back nights and all those things. And so um, I thought it was a, you know, look, impressive performance for a big time road game for Missouri showed that they can, they can handle it on the road despite not getting the win. And, um, and Arkansas, you know, trying to still figure it out too of, Hey, how many guys were going to play? They went deeper on their bench. Whereas at LSU, gosh, they played what five guys, probably 38, 39 minutes. And I know he doesn't like to go deep, but I, I just, I don't know that that's sustainable throughout the course of SEC play. So I like that he mixed it up a little bit. Dane, another topic I've heard you talk about, and it's intriguing to me too, is how quickly the portal can impact rebuilding programs. And we need only look as far as the SEC. You just talked about Mizzou, which I want to get your take on again. Uh, LSU, he, Matt McMahon had the one walk-on when he when he took the job over. Um, I think Mike White has done a great job. Uh, Chris Jans at, at Mississippi State, and they all they talked some of their players back out of the portal, but they had to get into the portal and, and basically rebuild from scratch. They did, and I think that that uh, makes administrations and fans even less patient, as as if they could be even less yeah. patient. But gone are the days where you say. Hey, we'll wait for him to get his recruiting class in. And as they get old, and then they'll be able to stay old. No, people want it now. And you look yeah. across the way and you say, well, that guy, you know, he, he's having success in year one. I, I do think one advantage for uh, somebody like LSU, it's hard to say advantage when he had Matt Mamanga had literally zero scholarship players at one point <laughs> when he took over. <laughs> but when you're a mid major coach and you have some, players available to bring with you that were diamonds in the rough that you have made and developed into big time players like a KJ Williams. Um, and then uh, uh, Dennis Gates doing the same thing at Cleveland state. When you have those guys, you can bring with you. Now all of a sudden you got three guys you're familiar with, you know, can play at this level. They've got the DNA of your team. And then if you can retain a couple good pieces and then you get a few from the transfer portal, now all of a sudden you're like, wait, we, we got a pretty good roster. And I think one thing at Missouri is, is they've not only done that, but they've recruited guys that have won at, at other places as well. So you got winners and, and you're able to sell an upgrade. So if you're Matt McMahon, you say, hey, I know you can um, go to a power five school. Well, I can be your power five coach. Like the upgrade is with me too. Whereas it's a little bit different for Mike White, right? If, if you're at Florida, yeah. it's like, hey, what what do you say? You're selling me Athens over Gainesville? I don't know. It's kind of <laughs> lateral. Not so, in basketball. <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit different. So, um, and I think uh, when you look at South Carolina, Lamont Paris, that would be one uh, sort of excuse, if you will, I could give Coach Paris is, you know, he didn't necessarily have that roster from UTC to say, let me pluck three really good players and insert them into my lineup right away. And I think that has them behind a little bit. Um, his best player, Malachi Smith, uh, had a chance to go to Gonzaga. That's that's sure. tough to compete with. Yeah, exactly. Um, this is no secret because Tennessee's uh, social media put it out weeks ago, but Chris Lofton's number is going to be retired at Tennessee, and I know that you and, and several others are involved. Tell us about that. and. What a deserving honor for him. Uh, it's just a matter of time because he met all the criteria. Yeah, he, he did. I mean, it's one of the great 
the greatest underdog story I've ever been a part of. Um, this was a guy that, you know, was signed late. The only reason he even got a scholarship offer from Tennessee was we had a guy uh, not make his grades and the scholarship opened up late. And it's like, all right, well, yeah, I hear about this kid in Kentucky. Let's go take a look at him. But, you know, I think he had a visit to Arkansas State, maybe Valparaiso. And he was actually – he's a home, like he's a homebody. He was like, you know, I, I was thinking about just playing at D3 school right there in Kentucky and just just playing ball at home. And then he gets signed at Tennessee. And let me tell you something. His first impression wasn't good. He came in. <laughs> you know, he, he was slow. He was losing every single drill. Um, hit the agility drills, he was awkward. His footwork wasn't good. And then he had, I believe, like a little appendix surgery, nothing major, but something that kind of set him back a little bit. Cause he's a guy that not a great natural athlete. So he had to have the training. So when he was rusty, he looked, he looked bad. And so we're all sitting there like, man, I know he was Mr. Basketball in Kentucky, but they had a down year. They had a down year in high school basketball in Kentucky, not even thinking. Then all of a sudden, man, he got his wind. He got his confidence. He started killing guys and and he was making these shots that you guys have seen these contested, just, just shots that looked like they were horrible decisions. They're like, man, that he was making that lucky stuff. And he kept making that lucky stuff over and over and over again. And really, to me, one of the when it really became his team, even as a freshman, we were getting waxed at the Maui Invitational against North Carolina. And uh, we had great players that are talented players, Scooter McFadden, Brandon Crump, C.J. Watson. Um, and all of a sudden, we're getting beat bad. This was to Rashad McCants, uh, uh, Sean May, national champion, North Carolina. And second half, Chris just kind of went into screw-up mode and was like, well, if nobody else wants to step up, and they're scared of these guys, I'm not. I'm going to put just, it up. He starts busting heads, man, just like, boom, like nobody could stop him. And it wasn't that big of a deal on TV because you're like, all right, well, he's going off. You know, we're still down 20, whatever. But for us, we were looking around, and at the end of the game, everybody's like, hey, I, this is CeeLo's team. Like, he just went yeah. out. We've seen him bust our, you know what, in practice. But he yeah. just busted North Carolina. And they put everybody on him, and it didn't matter. And uh, his his work ethic was sensational. I mean, I, I always would pride myself on being the hardest worker on the team, and nobody pushed me in my career like him. I'd get to practice early, and I'd hear the ball bouncing, and I'd say, "Damn it, he's already in the gym. I gotta stay late and beat me." And it would just ruin my plans that I had for after practice. It was like, "Well, I gotta log as many hours as Chris," and so it was. Um, it was just, and, and I, I'll end with with this on it. There, there. I've never been around a superstar whose teammates truly cheered and were so happy for success more than Chris. I mean, he was so humble, so likable. Could make fun of himself. You could make fun of him. And uh, usually, there's there's a little bit more jealousy in the locker room. There's some natural tension and things like that. Man, that this is a kid that never forgot where he came from and. Uh, polite respectful for everybody and and he was a breath of fresh air so to where all the walk-ons and, and everybody else was like you know what hey, i'm his biggest fan and it's not always that way he was fun to watch it's really cool you get to be a part of that dane uh, really appreciate the time as always look forward to catching up with you again down the road thank you guys anytime that was Dane Bradshaw from the SEC Network, and you'll see him on ESPN, uh, their family of networks. He is really, really good. One story in the SEC we did not get to with Dane 
was the uh, situation on Wednesday night in Gainesville with Texas A&M leaving its jerseys at the hotel, resulting in the game being delayed against Florida and an administrative technical foul assessed. The Gators shot one free throw before the game even began. Now, Buzz Williams, after the game uh, in his press conference, stuck up for his student manager, saying he was a a manager at one point himself, uh, took the blame for it with the jerseys. I kind of thought that whole situation uh, probably came out a whole lot funnier for Texas A&M because they won the game (laughs) 66-63. Buzz, I'll tell you, he occupies his own space in his own galaxy. Uh, This past uh, Blue Ribbon cycle, only two head coaches didn't talk to us, and, and he was one. He never wants to talk preseason. We always have to talk to one of his assistants. Uh, but he had a great he had a great quote. He took total blame. He says, you don't want the jerseys to get wrinkled, and so I hang them in my room, and I just forgot to put them on the bus. So uh, I thought that was cool. Uh, you never know what he might say. He'll wax philosophic about many things. He's sort of the late great Mike Leach of of, of basketball, <laughs> college basketball. I think uh, maybe not quite the Renaissance man Mike Leach was, but he definitely, you know, he'll say anything. And and I I thought he handled it classy because I I think I heard somebody say that he was a student manager once, and and uh, he knows what it's like. And I've I've not heard of in all the years I've covered it, I've not heard of anything quite like that. I. Uh, I, I guess you've dealt with some of those kind of stories. Uh, <laughs> I, I've seen a little bit of everything. Things. Yes, I've seen a little bit of everything when it comes to uh, things like this. And uh, I, I will say that student managers and grad assistants are, are such a vital part of college basketball programs. If you see how hard those guys work uh, oh, yeah. to, to make it all go, whether it's uniforms or getting everything ready for practice or running scout team stuff. I mean, it's amazing all the stuff that that they do. Um, I, I've actually roomed with uh, student managers and grad assistants here and there over the years. And, and you come you come into the, the hotel room and they would have done the laundry and there'd be jerseys hanging everywhere. Uh, you know, where yeah. they're, they're letting them dry. They don't want to you know, put them in the dryer for too long. And, um, you know, I, I've seen that situation. I've seen situations where the players had their jerseys in their rooms and somebody broke in and stole a couple of them. Uh, that, that happened one year uh, many years ago when I was with Belmont. Um, I've seen guys forget and leave their jerseys at home and uh, be on a road trip far away, and uh, those situations get a little interesting. But the one thing I can tell you uh, about the deal with Florida, uh, if Texas A&M, I assume they probably stay in the same hotel where we've stayed with Vanderbilt and in basketball and in football, which is right there by campus. So luckily for them, it wasn't very far. If it's that hotel from the arena to where they were staying to go back, it's only a couple minutes away to go back and get the jerseys and come back to the arena. Um, Now in football, it's a whole different deal because you have an equipment staff and they take everything on the, on the uh, tractor trailer. But uh, I was thinking, you know, if that happened in football, you stay in Ocala when you play in Florida and uh, that, that would have delayed the game even further. They might have to uh, move it into the next TV window. But I I thought that was an interesting situation. And and again, probably came out more fun for Texas A&M than it would have if they hadn't won the game there at Florida the other night. It's interesting, Chris, how coaches sometimes go to great lengths to talk about officiating without talking about officiating. What have you uncovered there? It's funny. Um, we were talking about the Missouri-Arkansas game. Uh, Missouri got called for 23 fouls. They went to the free throw line 21 times. Arkansas got called for 19. They went 23 times. So it's not a huge disparity. 
But Dennis Gates was asked about some of the falls, and he said his team, quote, always did not read the room when trying to draw fouls you're not likely to get in an SEC road game. So he called it reading the room. Uh, Danny Hurley, who's not exactly uh, warm and cuddly to officials anyway, <laughs> he was mad that UConn got beat at Providence. Providence uh, uh, was called for 20 fouls and went to the line 35 times. UConn got called for 27 and went to the line 19 times. Hurley's quote, he'd already given he'd already given his fair share to the refs on the court, but his quote after, they really attack you with their bodies, even on the offensive end of the court, the way they throw their bodies into you. And then uh, the, the one that really was, was kind of, he kind of went out there and said it, really. Uh, Tennessee lost to Arizona back, back in December, and uh, Tennessee went to the line 10 times, Arizona 27 times. Vols were called for 24 fouls, and, and Arizona 15. Rick Barnes allowed us how he respected the three officials. He'd known them for a long time, but he said, uh, I don't know what to say other than I thought a couple of plays at the end, it's going to be tough for us to look at. I know when we get that on tape, it's going to be tough to look at them with our <laughs> players. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I think he 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 didn't get fined for that, but he certainly uh, called into question. One of the plays in particular, Santiago Vescovi got mugged going to, going to the rim, and people were just incredulous that there was no fouls called. But, you know, I refuse to believe that that refs get intimidated by home crowds. Maybe they do, but I mean, they've got police escorts and stuff. I, I don't, I don't think they go out of their way to, to I think home cooking is, is manifested in, in the minds of, 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 uh, of fans who just get a little crazy. I don't know. What do you think? I, I think so too. Um, I've gotten to know quite a few officials over the years in calling games and traveling. And you see these guys all the time and, and I just have total respect for what they do because it's a really hard job. It's a fast game. It's a lot of uh, area to cover and yeah. a, lot of, a lot of things to watch. And, and you can't call every single thing that happens or the game would take like four and a half hours to play. And, and, and I, I really believe that these guys do their best to give every team a fair shake. Now, sometimes it doesn't always look that way, and they miss calls and make mistakes too. But, um, I, again, I have a lot of respect for uh, what those officials do. The, the, the situations that are interesting to me is where a, a coach will have a run-in with a ref and then see that same official maybe a couple games later or a few weeks later or whatever, and how much does that stay in the back of the mind uh, of both those guys, whether it's the coach yeah. or, or the official? And, you know, can you have a short memory and put that aside and move forward and, and try to continue whatever relationship you might have as far as a working relationship in the course of a game? Or, or do those things just bubble up because it, it, it just does? Um, I just think all yeah, those things you're are really only interesting. Human. Yep. And the, the other thing that, that kind of, I don't know, it's funny to me, you'll, you'll hear somebody say, well, he can't make that call at this point in the game. Well, yes, he can. The, the rules are the same from minute one to minute 40. You, you can't just not call something because it's late in the game or whatever. Yeah. Or, you know, and, and if somebody deserves a technical, if, if somebody drops, I don't know, an F-bomb at you in minute 39, that's just as 
that's just as much of a technical offense as it is in minute one. So uh, obviously emotions are are more charged in minute 39, but officials have to officiate by the rule book from start to finish. So I don't know. That's and, just me. Yeah, <laughs> and our friend Rick Bird uh, said the same thing. I heard him say it lots of times uh, with Belmont. It's like, I just want the officials to call the game the way it's supposed to be officiated, uh, regardless right. of what point it might be in the course of a 40-minute basketball game. That's right. Chris, uh, really the big story in sports this week has been uh, the scary situation with Buffalo Bill safety, DeMar Hamlin. He collapsed in that game in Cincinnati on Monday night and uh, still in critical condition in the hospital in Cincinnati. And there's been such an outpouring of folks just wishing that guy the best and, and praying for him. And um, I, I thought uh, just the way everyone handled that and what was I, – I, I was watching the game when it happened. I thought that was – about the scariest thing I've ever seen in a sporting event I've seen either in person or watching on TV. Uh, it also gave me a huge amount of respect for the athletic training staff and the medical people that work those games. They knew exactly what to do, and they revived him apparently a time or two on the field and then maybe another time when he got to the hospital. Um, but the, the work that those folks do, the men and women that, that do those jobs, um, uh, one million percent respect for the way they go about their work and you know you, you see trainers and you think of them you know, whether it's football or, or basketball or whatever sport it might be um it's, it's way more than taping ankles and and helping someone who takes a hard spill or whatever it might be they have to be totally trained for every situation and know what to do uh whether it's perform cpr use a defibrillator or, or whatever and uh, i just thought they they handled that amazingly the other night um that that was such a like i say a, a scary scene and maybe think of, of some things that had happened in college basketball. I mean, we think about Hank Gathers, you go back to the, you know, the early nineties yeah. when uh, he collapsed and gosh, it was just awful. I mean, remember him in passing away. Um, there was a player for Vanderbilt a few years back named Davis Nwakwo and he collapsed in practice and the, uh, the athletic trainers used the, uh, the defibrillator on him and brought him back and saved him. The work and training that these uh, folks have that, that are, are the medical people at these games, they always know, uh, I'm sure in the backs of their minds that they have to be ready for the worst situation. And that's what you saw the other night. Yeah. They, I've heard doctors say one of the best things that you can learn is CPR. I have not, I was not watching the game. Uh, I have not watched the play and I won't. Uh, it's just horrifying. Uh, you know, my, my prayers and thoughts go out to him. And, but it reminded me of a play that I saw when I was covering college basketball it was on the, the the not the bowl level, not the power conference level, but at East Tennessee State, mm -hmm. they were playing the Citadel. And remember Nick Bonacani, the the Dolphins linebacker. Yes. His son Mark uh, was a, a linebacker, and he tackled uh, an ETSU running back, and and uh, it immediately uh, paralyzed him. And I remember I was at the game. The, the place was just, you could hear a pin drop. The Citadel's uh, coach was vomiting on the sidelines. And that just really affected me. And, and then, of course, years later, I, I would cover the occasional SEC game. And when you're on the sidelines, it's just a different game. And then a couple of years after that, when I worked at the Chattanooga paper, uh, you know, would start to cover a, a Falcons game or whatever. And then you say, wow, it's, it's a different game still, you know, where, where 250 pound guys can run four, three forties. It's just, 
guys are so much bigger and faster and stronger and it's a scary game. And uh, I don't know what you do to, to prevent these kind of things, but you're right. It, it, it helps to have a, an athletic staff that, that knows what to do, keeps a calm head. And, and I, I really hope that the outcome is, is positive. Uh, not that, that he ever plays, but just that he leads a full yeah. and happy and healthy life. Yeah, I, I think that's first and foremost is, is that he's able to recover and, uh, yeah, just ha- have a normal life ahead, whether he ever plays football again or not. But um, I, I just thought uh, we would uh, mention that and certainly wish him the best from, from our show. Absolutely. And uh, I know a lot of folks uh, have him in, in their thoughts and prayers, DeMar Hamlin of the uh, Buffalo Bills. Well, Chris, uh, we will wrap up our show for this week. Uh, it's a lot of fun. As I, I always love when the calendar flips and you get into conference games full time. Yeah. Uh, the non-conference games are fun, and you see some really good matchups over the course of the first, you know, six or eight weeks of the season. But this is really where, to me, the season happens. You, you find out what your team really is. You, you play these conference games. I call it the cannibalization season. Where <laughs> it kind of feels that way, where everybody <laughs> eats the only the strong survive, you know, and, and even teams that started out great and were projected by Joe Lenardi and others to be in the NCAA field. And then they start playing three games a week or whatever it is. And a couple of them on the road. And then uh, the cannibalization starts and leagues just uh, devour one another and it's dog eat dog. And I just don't know how, Let's say, let's take for example, college football in Georgia. Georgia's going to be playing their 15th football game uh, of the season on Monday night to win the national championship. How on earth do you get through that many college football games, you know, unscathed enough to compete yeah. for the national championship? Oh, yeah. And it's just incredible. In football, the SEC is just like a beat grinder. And now it's like that uh, 31 times, whatever league it is. It's it's cutthroat. It's competitive, and wins on the road are as good as gold. Well, Dane Bradshaw was telling us earlier that that Chris Lofton was always able to beat him to the gym to uh, get started on practice and putting the work in. <laughs> I always feel like Chris Dorch always beats me to the Zoom call every week when we do our podcast. So I'm, I'm going to try to do better next week, Chris. No, man, you have you had technical difficulties, <laughs> which is not uncommon for me. He's Chris Dorch. I'm Kevin Ingram. That is the Blue Ribbon College Basketball Podcast. We'll talk to you next time.